Amen. That is the power of the cross. As Paul said, God forbid that we should ever boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which we've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to us. Well, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke, and so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to join me in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke began the whole book of Luke, you'll recall, as we began back in October, by saying his purpose was to write an orderly account. So that's the banner we've given across the whole study. This is an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. And Luke said, I wrote these things so that you may have confidence in the things that you have been taught. And so in Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse number 14. In this narrative, Jesus is going to return home. There's one thing that's true about all of us and that we all have somewhere where we are from. How many of you are from Rocky Mount? Right? So, so, so you're from this area. Perhaps you come from somewhere else. Anytime you meet somebody, the first thing you usually ask them is, well, what's your name? And not very soon after that, you'll ask, well, where are you from? Wherever we come from, it says certain things about us, whether good or bad, right? I usually say I'm from Rocky Mount. I was born in Fayetteville, but Rocky Mount's pretty much my home. And most of the time, if I meet somebody who's not from here or from this area, they assume that it's in the mountains. They say, well, actually, no, you have to go through the whole thing. We're actually east of Raleigh and so on and so forth. Now, if, if you're from somewhere, some things can sometimes be concluded about you. Maybe your accent or, or uh, your upbringing or so on and so forth. Jesus is from Nazareth. And in those days, that did say something about people. In fact, one of his disciples will even say, when he's told the Messiah, they found him, he's from Nazareth. He'll say, can anything good come from Nazareth? So we'll talk a little bit about where Jesus is from in a, in a moment. And what happens here is he returns home. And so as we go through the orderly account, the good thing about Luke is that he is orderly. We'll see that there's a place that Jesus goes, there's a message that Jesus proclaims, and then there's a response that Jesus has from the group of people that he gives the message to. So if you are a note taker or you like things that are organized, that's, their, that's our three segments. The location, the message, and then the response. Well, let's begin in Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. This is right after the temptation of Jesus that we've recently studied through. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, the Scripture says that about Him because He overcame temptation. If there's no power of the Spirit in your life, what may be the case is that you are continually succumbing to temptation. Jesus faces the three temptations out in the wilderness. He does not succumb to them. He has short conversations with the enemy. He keeps it short. He quotes the scripture. And again, we've said it several times, but I think it's worth repeating. The enemy has no counter to the man or the woman full of the Holy Spirit who knows the word of God, believes the word of God, and obeys the word of God. There's no comeback for the enemy in that situation. So after he overcomes temptation in in the private realm, he's ready to begin his public ministry. And again, that's very important, the sequence of events there. If our church in this area is going to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, what will have to precede that is in private, when nobody's around. You know, when who you are when no one's around, that's who you really are. When no one's watching, when you're out, as Jesus was out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, in the wilderness, facing temptation, he overcomes it, and now he can publicly be in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's the region. 
If we were going to talk about our region, we would perhaps say we're in the southeastern United States. So Galilee is the region he's returning to. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So word spreading fast. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here's the, here's the pattern. He's in the spirit and he begins to teach in these synagogues. Now here's the interesting thing about the, about the Old Testament is you never hear any talk about synagogues. If you, do a, if you do a word search and you type in the word synagogue, the, the, you, you won't have any Old Testament scriptures come up. Because there were no synagogues in Old Testament times. And then you flip over to the New Testament and they seem like they're everywhere. Now what happened? Well, here's what happened. The Babylonian captivity happened. The Babylonians in 586, just hang with me, B.C. came and they conquered Jerusalem. And as they conquered Jerusalem, one of the things that they did to send a message that they were in charge is they destroyed the temple. Now think about that for a moment from the Jewish perspective. Destroying the temple was the greatest of all insults. In fact, they believed that the temple would never be destroyed. They were, in fact, if you read the book of Jeremiah, that's what they had actually put their trust in. Nothing bad will happen to Jerusalem because the temple's in Jerusalem. And they assumed no matter how wicked we live or how much idolatry we have because the temple's here, Jerusalem will always be safe. And many times as you study the Old Testament, God did miraculously deliver them and preserve the temple. But the Babylonians come, wipe it out. So then you have a choice that you can make. Are we just going to give up? Are we going to quit? Are we going to no longer study the scriptures? Are we no longer going to worship? And their response was, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to continue to get together in groups of people where we are to read the scripture, to sing, to give thanksgiving. And so what began to pop up all around were these places. So the, 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 the kind of rule of thumb, so to speak, was you needed 10 men. If 10 men could get together, bring their families, worship together, they began to uh, establish what we call synagogues. And now after the Babylonian captivity, they rebuilt the temple, but they continued to have these synagogues together. Now then synagogues, you don't make sacrifices. That's only for the temple. But they would begin to get together. And here's the pattern. Sunset on Friday, at the ruler of the synagogue's house, he'd blow a trumpet once as the sun begins to set. Just letting everybody in the town know, you know what? Sabbath is approaching. It's time to set aside all the work. And then he'd blow the trumpet again, say, all right, seriously, if you're still working, stop. It's time to set it aside. And then he'd blow the trumpet the third time as the sun set, and then the Sabbath day had begun. And what would happen is all the families would gather in their homes for a day of rest a day of reflection on the promises of God, a day of worship and a day of prayer. Overnight, they'd be together, they'd pray together in their homes as a family, and then the next morning, they'd gather together in the synagogue to worship the Lord. Sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? To take a day, to set aside, you're not rushed, you're not busy, you're with your family, you're praying together, you're worshiping together. That's what the pattern was. And then when he got to synagogue, they did have an order of worship, so to speak. The people would gather together. There are two officers in the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. Sometimes you'll be studying the scripture, and he'll talk about the ruler of the synagogue. For example, Jairus. Remember, his daughter will pass away. And later on, we'll get to that. It's very soon in the Gospel of Luke. He's called the ruler of the synagogue. So he's kind of the man in charge. He doesn't do, all the, all, he doesn't do everything, but it's his, his responsibility to approve whoever's going to stand before the congregation and teach that day. And then there was a keeper of the scrolls. No printing press back then, no copy machine. So the, the scrolls that the scripture were, were written on were precious. It's the most valuable uh, possession that the people have in the whole town. And so somebody was, uh, was the scroll keeper, so to speak. He kept them safe and clean and dry and so on and so forth. So those are the two officers. And then the order of service, they would get together. And the first thing that they would do is they would give thanksgiving. I just tell you that because it's probably a pretty good way for you to start your day. 
before you, you just get overcome with everything, just begin to be thankful for the things that God's already done. Then they'd have a time of prayer. And, and, the, and the whole, it's not this passive thing. The whole congregation's involved. Sure, one man may stand to pray, but everybody's thinking along, and then they'd all say amen. Then there were two readings, one from the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there'd be a reading from the passage of the prophets. And then somebody... One of the men who was approved by the ruler of the synagogue would stand up and give a word of exhortation, a sermon, if you will, and then there was a benediction. You say, well, that sounds like a, sort of like our order of service. Well, that's good. Those are good things to do, to be thankful, to be prayerful, to study the scripture to, together. But that's what's going on when it says Jesus would go uh, through the, throughout the region and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. That means that there, nobody had taught quite like him. So he's traveling, and then we get to verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So that's where he's from. It's where he'd spent his childhood. So we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. You remember a few scenes of his birth, and then there's only one scene between his birth and his public ministry, and that's when he, they go to the temple. He's 12 years old, and he stuns all the leading theologians of the day with his expertise in the Scripture. Otherwise, we don't have a lot of information about his childhood. The scripture just says that he increased in knowledge and favor with God and man. It's the best thing that can be said about a child. If you're a parent, make that your aim. That your child, as they grow, they increase in knowledge and in favor with God and man. In that order, favor with God first. And it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Just real quick, parenthetically, it says it's his custom. No matter where he is, no matter what he's doing, it was his custom to go and worship corporately once a week. And I give you that as a pastoral exhortation. Make that your custom. If you're in Rocky Mount, of course, we would love for you to come and worship with us. If you're not in Rocky Mount, if you're elsewhere, if you're traveling, I encourage you, no matter where you are, make it your custom to gather with the body of, of Christ. It says he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Remember, so the, so the officer who keeps the scrolls gives him, and he starts unrolling the scroll. Uh, now, now, this is important. Jesus has come home. What scripture is he going to pick to read from? He gets the prophet Isaiah and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So let's talk for a few moments about the location. He's in Nazareth and now the, the message. Why does he select this? I mean, there's 60, excuse me, 39 books in the Old Testament. But it says he goes to where Isaiah was. Now, in those days, they don't have chapters and verses. That was later. So the scripture just says he found the place where Isaiah. It's Isaiah 61, by the way that he finds and he begins to read that he begins to read that scripture and the reason he reads that is that it's this scripture perhaps more clearly than any other 
that clearly establishes and defines what his mission is, what his mission was, and what his mission, I believe, continues to be today. Now, there's a growing problem in our day, and perhaps even some of us in the room have undergone it. It's called identity theft, where somebody comes along and they rob you of your identity. They get your social security number. They get your credit card number. And if you've ever been through it, my understanding is it is an absolute nightmare trying to clear all of it up. The, the bank accounts drain, the, 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 the companies don't understand, they're calling you to say that you've done so on and so forth. I mean, when somebody robs you of your identity, most of the time in our culture it happens on the computer or you left your billfold and somebody gets the number and then it's, it's um, maddening to try to explain, no, I didn't buy that, no, I didn't do that, no, I was never even there to have your identity stolen from you. And what happens very frequently with Jesus is that sometimes... People attempt to proclaim that this is what he was about. Now, here is an example where we get it from his own mouth. That here's what his mission is. He says very clearly, this is what I've come to do. So would we take just a moment and just look at the scripture and here's what he says. He uses four metaphors that are kind of getting around the same message. He says, I've come to proclaim. Look at the verbs. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Now, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon Him. We saw that at the baptism. He's baptized. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Him. And can I just say, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon people for this specific reason. The Spirit of the Lord does not come upon you necessarily so you'd run around this room screaming. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon you for this mission. For this purpose. So, So if you want to ask... The simple question is, how do I know if the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Here's how you know. Is this what you're about? Proclaiming good news. Setting at liberty the captives. Look at what Jesus says, quoting from this scripture. He says, I've come to proclaim good news, first of all, the scripture says, to the poor. Now what in the world does that mean? He's come to proclaim the good news to the poor. Well, most of the time when we use that word we tend to use it in an economical sense. In an economic sense, we don't have a lot of money. First of all, let's define it by the original language, the Greek. When it says poor, what it means is, uh, is, is beggar. It means that I have no resources at all. It's not that I go to the ATM and I wish it was a little bit more. It means that the, 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 the ATM says zero funds available. But it's not in an economic sense. It's not what Jesus is getting at. And it's not what Isaiah had been getting at. It's getting at the poverty in the spiritual realm. In fact, uh, Matthew teaches it this way. It says in Matthew 4, when Jesus went up on a mountainside, he, his disciples gathered and he began to teach to them the kingdom. And here's the first words out of his mouth. You remember these? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of our starting lines where he starts here. He says, what does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in this spiritual sense? Well, elsewhere, Jesus tells this story. I don't remember if you uh, recall it or not. Where uh, two men go to the temple. One's a Pharisee and the other's a tax collector. And, and Jesus is telling the story and he says, the Pharisee comes up and he stands there at the temple and he says unto the Lord, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then Jesus says, the tax collector standing at the temple and he won't even lift up his eyes. But the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me. 
for I'm a sinner. You've got two pictures, okay? One, this arrogant, proud, self-righteous Pharisee, and this other, this broken, humble tax collector. And Jesus poses this question. He says, which, of you think, which one do you think went home justified? And well, who, which one? The, the tax collector. When he says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, he's saying, I've come to proclaim good news to those who know, who understand that apart from the grace of God, apart from the grace of God, we have no hope. But this rubs against fallen human nature because the defining characteristic of fallen human nature is that we want to fix it ourselves. We want to do something. We want to earn it. We want to achieve it. We want to be able to stand up and say, hey, I did it. And what Jesus is saying is I've actually come, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to those who understand, spiritually speaking, we're, we're bankrupt. There's no way to earn salvation for, for you have been saved by faith through grace. It is the gift of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Poor means the destitute, the, the beggars. And it's a worthwhile question of just asking, how do we stand today? When it comes to Christ, when it st- comes to the cross, what's our attitude? Is, is there a sense of brokenness? Is there a sense of thanksgiving and, and gratitude? Or is there a sense in our hearts that, you know what, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind, of, kind of all right on my own. He says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. The verb there is to proclaim that means that you're actually speaking the words and then it's good news. Do you believe the gospel is good news? Now all these metaphors are spiritual. He continues and says, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. On the count of three, everybody say liberty. One, two, three. That's a good word, isn't it? Did you know that Jesus came to proclaim liberty to you? If you'll believe in Him, that you will be at liberty. You'll be set free. He, I love, as the song said, he, he cancels the power of sin. He cancels rather, he, he breaks the power, I'll get it right in a moment, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. If, if we're understanding what the Bible says, is that we're, apart from Christ, under this unbelievable load of debt. It's a debt that's so high we can't repay it. It's just kind of a crushing debt. And then by the grace of God, Jesus comes along and says the debt is, is canceled. He says, is that true? Oh, yeah, that's true. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So if you're in Luke, just start kind of turning about from Luke midway to the end of the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. Let's go, all this, I love all of Colossians 2, but let's go specifically to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, it's written right there. For you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's canceled the record of sin. So you got a little voice that comes along and says, yeah, 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 that's true, but not true, so true for you. And you're imprisoned in guilt and shame. 
Good news. He came to proclaim capt- captives are set at liberty. And then he's become recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are oppressed. And, and so it says he, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the people who hear this, it says that, that all who are in the synagogue fixed their eyes on him. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Behold, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That's what he says. And he's fulfilling this scripture. And, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This reminds me of uh, um, uh, a, couple, a couple times in the past. I've tuned in to see that show, uh, American Idol. I've not watched it in a while. I'll give you that disclaimer, I guess. But towards the end of the season, the final four, or when they get down to a few, they, they do this thing called the, I, don't, I can't think of the name of it. They all go back to their hometown. And they follow them home. And these folks that have gotten kind of famous on the television over the last 12 weeks or so, they, they, they go home. And it's pretty unbelievable. It's like the whole city turns out. They've all stayed up late making these posters, welcome home, and whoever so, and they have this huge concert at each location. The camera's following them, them around, and all these people show up, and it's like the, the, the whole town is thrilled. They, they come out, and the mayor shows up, and all these civic honors. For, 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 for what reason? These people have just gotten on television and sang a song. I mean, they're, they're talented. I'll give them that. But, man, they, I mean, it's like you go, and the sign says, welcome to so-and-so town, home of fill-in-the-blank. I mean, people are thrilled. They've come home. I want you to notice as Jesus continues to speak that people have turned out, but the, but the reception changes. As a matter of fact, um, go with me to verse 28. It says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with what? Fury. Wrath is what my translation says. You know what wrath is? like hot anger. It means everybody's it just infuriated. Now, now notice verse 22. All spoke well of him. Then we go a few more verses and then they're all filled with what happened? Well, what, what transpired that everybody who showed up was, man, he's, our, he's from our hometown and the report's going everywhere and we're going to set out a sign in Nazareth, home of Jesus, and he's our hometown hero. And, and, and then he says something and then, and, and, and then it's not just they're full of wrath. It says they rose up. And drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. It's not just that they're worked up, they're going to kill him. So here's a simple question. What happened? What happened that this whole scene changed? Well, let's read it together. It begins to happen in verse 23. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb... Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the name of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now what happened? Well, in order to understand what happened, we have to understand these two uh, instances that Jesus refers to. 
One, he talks about this prophet Elijah. He, he talks about prophets, two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And he proceeds it by saying no prophets without honor except in his own hometown. So then he, he talks about two prophets and two things that happened in those prophets' life. One is Elijah. And he, 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 many widows in that day, Jesus says, but only one's healed. And then many lepers in the time of Elisha, but only one healed. In both of those cases, by the way, in the Old Testament, those who were healed were not Jewish people. These two, uh, Zarephath and Naaman, they're not Jewish. What are they? They're Gentiles. And so what Jesus is saying is to his hometown folks, you're like those people back then. What does he mean by that? Well, we don't have time to look at both of these Old Testament scenes, so we're just going to pick one of them. So go with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. So we're going to the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll look at one of these examples that Jesus uses in Nazareth. That's the example of this man named Naaman. So if you're with me in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, here, here's the scene, here's the scene that Jesus teaches the folks in Nazareth. They are familiar with it, perhaps you are too, and they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So it says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So real fast, he's not Jewish, he's Gentile. And he's like the general. He's the main man. He's the guy who walks in the room, got decorations all over the place. All on his chest, he's got the medals and so on and so forth. He's a who's who. Was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now who's responsible for the victory? Well, not necessarily Naaman. The Lord had given him the, the victory. He was a mighty man of valor. He's a strong guy. He's a man's man. He walks in the room. All the eyes of the men are on him. Say, man, that's a hero. That's the commander of the army. But he's got a problem. Did you read what the problem was? He's a mighty man of valor, but he was a, what's the scripture say? He's a leper. He's got a um, disease that just in the course of time, while it's, won't go into too much detail, literally eating him alive, it's ultimately going to end in his death. And, uh, God often uses physical metaphors to teach us spiritual truth. And all through the scripture, he uses leprosy as a very good physical metaphor for the reality of sin that is currently destroying us. And as the scripture says, when sin is full grown, it brings forth, what's the scripture say? Death. So so leprosy is a physical representation of the spiritual reality of sin. So, So Naaman, in spite of all his accolades, in spite of wherever he goes, he's the biggest man on the block. He's got a disease that is destroying him. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now Naaman went in and told his Lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So he's gotten pretty desperate that he's going to take the advice of his little girl. But when you've got leprosy and there's no heal to it, there's no pharmacy, they can't give you some medicine to heal it. I mean, his time is short. He's, he's grasping at straws almost. And he says, here's this little girl. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. All right? Man's always got a pack. And, and, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive the man sends his word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? 
The king of uh, Israel flips out because he's like, this, this uh, commander showed up and he's expecting me to heal him. I've got no power to do this. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So his assumption is he set me up and Syria wants to invade us. And he's just using this as a play so that when we don't heal them, Syria is going to come for us. They've already made some raids. You read that part, right? But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he went to the king and sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? He said, there is a prophet in Israel. Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. I just said that. But. So Naaman came. Now notice how Naaman shows up. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Now this isn't the way that Naaman's accustomed to being welcomed. He's the commander. He's showing up with his chariots the way that we put it today. This whole line of Humvee limousines showed up at the door. And all these wealthy people were around. And, and then this humble prophet just sends a messenger out he doesn't even come out himself and and he, and he says uh, go and wash in the jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean now how do you think this Naaman's going to take this message Naaman was angry and went away saying behold i thought that you would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the lord his god and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper he said, I thought it would be something dramatic. He's going to come out and start waving his hands, doing some sort of jig. I mean, I don't know what Naaman's... But, but he's just sent this messenger and just says this. Here, it's real simple. Just go in the Jordan, dip seven times. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I could have washed in them and be clean. So he went away. So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Hear him saying? Isn't this simple? It's a simple message. And he's come bringing all his money. He's he's ready to pay Elisha millions of dollars. So he went down. I want you to just picture the scene now. Famous, courageous, important Naaman. In his day... One of the most famous men there is. He went down into the Jordan. So he got all his, I don't know, maybe took the medals off, so to speak. But all his group is with him. And he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Can you picture him? One time. This is the most foolish thing I've ever done. Should be back in Damascus. That's what he said. We got rivers there two times, three times. Doesn't look like any things things happening. Four times, five times. This isn't working. Six times. Seven times. (laughs) According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. Well, what's, well, let's go back to Luke 4. What's Jesus getting at here? If you follow what Jesus is saying, here's what they got offended about. He said, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. I've come to set at liberty the captives. I've come to set at liberty the oppressed. And what they got so upset about is that they understood Jesus 
was telling them that they were the poor ones. Jesus was telling them that they were the captives. And they didn't like being told that. Jesus was telling them they were the lepers. Let me give you four quick things from 2 Kings 5. Number one, only when we acknowledge our own sin-sick state will we seek cleansing. You saw old Naaman when he showed up, right? Showed up with the money, showed up with the gold, showed up with his entourage, showed up with his ribbons, showed up with all these things, and he thought, man, when they're going to welcome me here and they're going to make a big and he's going to come out and wave his arms. But only when we acknowledge our sin-sick state will we seek cleansing. So that means, if that's true, the worst enemy we have is our own pride. You ever do that? You just kind of say, well, you look around and say, ah, I'm not so bad. The great deception of the enemy is for us to compare ourselves to each other and not compare ourselves in the light of the holiness of Almighty God. And that's one of the reasons they got so upset in Nazareth. Who's this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? Coming along telling us that we got to change? That we need to repent? That we're poor? Only when we acknowledge our own sin-sick state will we see cleansing. And number two, only when we hear the truth will we discover the path to cleansing. Uh, Naaman's day, it was the prophet said, you go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He's talking about physical healing. Jesus has proclaimed, come to proclaim spiritual healing. And some people respond the same way. That's just foolish nonsense. The gospel, or the cross, rather, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are, who are perishing. He told to bow my knee to Christ, confess Him as Lord and Savior, confess that He's died for my sins. Third, only when we reach the end of our own way will we be ready to follow the Lord's way. Only when we come to understand how truly spiritually poor we are, understand that we are spiritual beggars, will we be ready to follow the Lord's way. And only when we do as God requires, will we receive his cleansing. So Naaman's got a few options. One, he can just keep going the bandage route, just keep bandaging it up. But it's only a matter of time. And for us, it's the same is true when it comes to dealing with the sin issue. We just kind of color it up or bandage it up. Leprosy in those days, you put some makeup on and try to color, but but it's not doing anything. And most of, actually all of the solutions other than the blood of Christ that the world offers as solutions are just makeup on leprosy. Color it up a little bit, but it's still destroying. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, what? Lose all their guilty stains. It says they want to go throw him off the mountain. By Jesus' words, it's clear up in uh, what we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. What they wanted him to do was some miraculous sign. And he does a miraculous sign, just not the one that they anticipated. It says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, in conclusion, I want us to look in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, at the scroll, the scripture from the scroll that Jesus read from. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Just take us a few moments to do this. Isaiah chapter 61.
Jesus read this portion beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because, he has a, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now I just want you to note in your Bible that that's where Jesus stopped reading in Luke chapter 4. At that point when he reads that part, it says he... he uh, Roll the scroll back up and put it to the attendant. But I want you to notice, he said, and today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But he didn't read the whole thing. If you look in your text, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what sort of punctuation do you see? There's a comma. Because it's an incomplete thought. But I do want you to notice the next line. What's it say? And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why did Jesus not read that part? Jesus did not read that part because of what he said. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He only read the portion that on that day would be fulfilled. That makes sense, right? But that does not mean that there won't be a day that that next line is fulfilled. And what's the next line? And the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus said, the first time I'm here, I'm the Messiah. I've come to my hometown I've come to proclaim the year, the year of favor from the Lord. But let's preach the whole counsel of God, right? There will come a day of vengeance. What does that mean? It means the judgment of God is going to come. And I know, I get it. In 2013, United States of America, not a real popular message. But it's written there. And I do believe when the Lord comes again, that day he'll say, I've come to fulfill all of Isaiah, a portion of Scripture. So, so do you see what he's done? I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, set at liberty the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to those who are oppressed. If, if like those in Nazareth, we reject Christ, there no longer remains any means of redemption or forgiveness. Put it in Naaman's terms from 2 Kings chapter 5. There's not another river to go dip in. There's not another river that's going to cleanse you. There's only one. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the good news is he did come to proclaim good news. But here's the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not just come to proclaim good news. He came to do what was necessary in action, in behavior, to secure the good news. Meaning, yes, and we'll study it from the Gospel of Luke, he goes around in the synagogues proclaiming and teaching. But there's also come a moment where he's going to go from the synagogue to the temple, if you will, where sacrifice is to be made. They don't make sacrifices in the synagogue. They make sacrifices in the temple. And what Jesus taught is that he is the temple. He is the sacrifice. And he's been crucified. Here's why. So that us who are beggars spiritually can be set free. That's his mission. If we're going to be full of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power will be upon us, that's the mission we'll proclaim as well. Well, let's stand together and we'll pray together. I invite you to bow your heads with me and we'll have a time of invitation. 
Time of invitation is simply a time to respond to the Word of God. Jesus said that He had come to proclaim good news to the poor, to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to the beggars like the tax collector who couldn't even lift his eyes to the heavens as he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So when it comes to spiritual things, either we're spiritually poor or we think that we're spiritually wealthy, that we've done enough good things, that we're not so bad. Well, the good news is for the poor. All of us are poor. It's only a matter of if we recognize it or not. Recovery of sight to the blind. Some of us are blind to our own spiritual poverty. The Word of God opens our eyes, first of all, to our spiritual death, and then to the possibility of resurrection through Christ. As Colossians says, He's canceled the debt of our sin, nailing it to the cross. Is the cross your hope this morning? The blood of Jesus, the Jordan River that you've dipped in? Father, we believe that when we respond to what you say, there is healing, there is cleansing. Naaman was an arrogant man. But when he realized how poor he was, he actually became very, very rich. Spiritually, that's what's true for us. So we pray in response to the word of God is first of all, we would understand how empty, how poor, how destitute we are apart from Christ. And then we would understand how marvelous a gift of God's grace His death on the cross is for us. Would you guard us from looking for other rivers, dipping over and over and over in Faspar River near Damascus when life and healing and restoration is to be found in Jesus? Help us to respond in a way that is in accordance with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.